Morning. Yeah, Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Then the, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right. Thank you, Justin. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's a bit of a difference. <laughs> well, this morning we are continuing on in our series in the life of Abram. And uh, this morning, we, we are really coming to, to what is one of the most significant moments in his life. C- certainly, there are, there's a lot in the life of Abram that are very significant, but, but this one ranks pretty high among them. God is making a covenant with Abram, right? Now, we're, we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but essentially, you can think about it just at the outset as, as a contract. God is making this, this contract with Abram. All right, and if you've ever been in business, you're, you're going to know just how important it is to actually have a contract. There's a big difference between having something in writing versus just a, a verbal agreement, right? You can say, hey, you know what, I'd, I'd love to buy that. But until you actually get sort of a purchase order, until something's down in writing, until there's money on the table, it's not quite the same. You don't have that same sense of security that it's going to go through. Right? Or you can think about buying a home, 
right? You can, you can make an offer, it can be accepted, but until finally all those subjects are off, you don't have a locked-in contract. There's a difference between kind of waiting on those pins and needles, making sure everything goes through, to when it's finally done, and you can say, all right, I'm done. All right, I, 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 can, I have a house, I can relax a little bit, right? Having a contract gives you that security. Now, there's a story about a man, his name was, let me get this right, Winston Bogard, all right? He was a soccer player in England, uh, and back in 2000, the year 2000, he, uh, he got a contract with Chelsea Football Club. Right, he got this contract, and so he signed it. It was for 40,000 pounds every week. Right? It's a fairly big contract. So I think it was something like 8 million over four years he was going to be getting. Right? Now, he was a decent soccer player. It's why he got such a, such a nice contract. But about two weeks into his contract, the head coach got fired, and a new head coach was hired. So this new coach comes in, and he meets Winston, and he says, I just want you to know uh, you're not going to be playing. I don't like you. I don't think they should have hired you. Uh, they gave you way too much money. I'm not going to play you, just so you know. Now, normally when this happens, you know, a player looks for a trade, right? Clearly, that's not a great situation. So normally, you try and get yourself traded to another team. But the problem is he had signed a contract and no one else was willing to match it. No other football club was willing to match this contract. So Winston decided, you know what, instead of just you know, being upset or instead of trying to get out of it, he said, I'm just gonna ride it through. He showed up to every single practice, every single training day, and he trained, he fulfilled everything, and he got paid 40,000 every week to sit on the bench. In his four years with Chelsea, he played a total of 11 games. That's it. So he essentially got paid, I think, about 750,000 pounds every game he played. And most of the time, he didn't even play the full game. He was just the bench warmer who got called in partway through the game. Right? And when he was asked about this, why did you go through? Why didn't you try and get yourself traded or get it to a different team or try something? This is what he said. He said, why should I throw away 15 million euro when it's already mine? At the moment I signed it, it was in fact my money, my contract. Here's the thing, he, he was right. The moment he signed that contract, even though the money wasn't all in his bank account, it was his. And so he could go back and say, you know what, the money's mine, I can have it, it's just a matter of time. See, his contract gave him a sense of security, and he could actually rest easy knowing that it would come to him. See, that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. God is essentially making a, a contract, it's a covenant, but a contract with Abram, and so Abram could actually do exactly what Winston did, look back and say, the moment the contract was signed, all of the things that God had promised to me were mine. They were for sure going to come, and actually, that's exactly what God wanted. That's exactly what God was looking for. He was looking to do that in order to build up Abram's faith, to allow him to trust in him. And the truth is, that's exactly what God wants from us as well. 
See, the thing is, contracts can be broken. The promises of God cannot. God actually wants us to be able to trust him more than we trust in a contract over a business deal or a house. We can trust him with all of our lives. So this morning, if you have a Bible, I'll invite you just to turn back there. We're going to walk through Genesis chapter 15 together. One of the most significant moments in Abram's life, it's also one of the most significant moments in the Bible. Right, All throughout the Old Testament, people look back to this covenant that God makes with Abram. This becomes a defining feature all the way up until the New Testament. People are claiming we are the children of Abram, of Abraham. Why? Because they wanted to be a part of this covenant. They wanted to have a claim in this covenant that God makes with Abram. And so this chapter has a lot in it. There's a lot of things that we could pull out and we could look at, but for this morning, because, you know, I'm assuming you want lunch at some point, uh, we're just going to look at two of them, all right? We're just going to look at Abram's faith, and we're going to look at at the covenant itself. What did God promise, and how was that fulfilled? So we're going to look at Abram's faith, and specifically his faith as he is questioning, as he is uh, struggling through these things. Look back at verse 1 with me, because Abram's faith is starting out not strong, but shaking. Verse 1 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your reward shall be very great. Now, if we're going to understand exactly what is being said here, we've got to just remind ourselves of what happened last week, right? If you were here with us, we looked through chapter 14, and some pretty major things happened. Abram got himself mixed up in some pretty bad dealings, right? If you remember, there were these nine kings, and there was this massive feud going on, four kings against five, and they were fighting it out. And in the middle of this sort of chaos of battle, Abram's nephew, Lot, gets captured. He gets taken away as a prisoner of war. And so Abram hears about this, and he decides, okay, you know what? I've got to go rescue my nephew, Lot. I've got to go after him. And so he grabs 300 guys with him, and they march out, and they attack the camp, and they actually overcome. They win this entire battle. Abram walks away with all of the spoils of this war and his nephew, Lot. And so Abram walks back, and he actually just gives away everything. He says, I don't want any of it. I don't need to keep it. It's all, give it away. I don't need any of that. God will be the one to bless me. But here's the thing. In doing that, Abram just made some really powerful enemies, didn't he? He had attacked essentially a group of these four kings, and they were pretty powerful rulers throughout the region. And so Abram is now realizing what he has done. He's made powerful enemies, and he's wondering, okay, next year, as they kind of gather their forces again, are they coming after me this time? Have I just put a target on my back, and you know what? I might have a couple hundred guys, but I am not big enough to stand up against them. Am I going to get overrun? And then he starts to think, you know what? Maybe maybe I should have kept some of that money. Maybe I should have kept some of the stuff that, that was there. And, you know, I could probably could have bribed off these kings or bought new weapons or, you know, paid someone to protect me. Oh, no, what have I done? And so God speaks to Abram 
at this point. God comes to him in his worries, in his fears, in his doubts, in his questions, and God speaks to him. He comes and he says, do not be afraid. Fear not, Abram. He says, I am your shield. Right? There's a reason God uses here a military image. The reason is because that's exactly what Abram was worrying about. He was worrying about actual military people coming after him, and God says, I am the one who will protect you. I will be your defender. Your reward will be very great. Yes, you gave up something, yet you will receive far more than you ever gave up. See, God doesn't come to Abram and just kind of smack him on the head, right? Abram's worrying and and he's afraid. God doesn't come in and go, why are you worried? He doesn't come in and say, why aren't you trusting? I told you I'd protect you. No, actually, he, he comes in quite gently, doesn't he? He comes in with compassion. He comes in with love and tenderness towards him. He doesn't destroy Abram. Actually, he says, don't be afraid. I am your shield you will have a great reward. In fact, that's exactly how God deals with us so often. Sure, there are times where God does give us a little bit of a smack on the head and says, okay, wake up, come on, right? Get your head, oh, right, yeah. But far more often, God doesn't deal with us that way. Far more often, he comes with compassion and meets us in our doubting and our fears and our worries. And God meets them and says, and I will take care of you. Listen to how Jesus says this in the New Testament. He says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? Jesus comes and he speaks to his disciples in this very same way. Don't be afraid. Yes, there are worries. Yes, there are all of these things that you need to take care of. But ultimately, it's not in your control. They're in God's control and he knows that you need them. Rather, seek to be faithful to what he has called you. See, that's what God is saying to Abram. Be, or yeah, trust in God and he is the one who is going to take care of you. You know, we can give just a bit of a trivial example. But oftentimes when I'm hungry, I'll I'll go into the fridge and I'll start trying to search for something to eat. And oftentimes my wife comes down and says, what are you doing? Okay, let me find something because I'm finding nothing in a house full of food, right? And so my wife comes and she says, I will make something for you. And you know what I do? I stop worrying about it. I I, I don't continue to worry. I don't continue to search. I don't continue to do all these things. Why? Because I actually trust that my wife is able to do that. She's probably going to bring back something that's delicious as well. But that's exactly what God is saying to Abram. Abram, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust in me that I'm actually able to do what I say I will do. It's the same call for us. Do we trust God like that? Do we trust that God is actually in control, that he is actually able to provide for all that we need? Sometimes we live and we act as if we say, yes, I'm going to trust God, and at the same time, we're out the door looking for McDonald's, right? 
Do we trust him with the things that we worry about? Do we trust him with our children? Do we trust him with our money? Do we trust him with our future, with our spouse, with our health? See, this passage is a call, Abram, stop worrying about these things. Rather, seek after what I have called you to do. And you've got to understand, this is a difficult thing. This is a difficult thing for Abram to do. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Abram received these promises of God, right? He, he said to him, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you a land. And this is now almost 10 years later. Abram has been doing this for a while, and right now he has no children and not a square inch of land that is his own. How exactly is Abram to continue to trust? Abram's faith is shaking, and so God, or sorry, so he begins to ask God questions. He begins to question him and says, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. Right? Abram's asking a pretty legitimate question. He's asking him, how, how exactly am I supposed to know? I don't have any children. Right now, all my stuff is going to go to one of my servants. He's going to inherit everything I've got. So how do I know? Verse 3, he even says, behold, you have given me no offspring. It's a pretty bold claim. In fact, he's right. God hadn't at this point. And so God then answers his question. Verse 4, or verse 5, pardon me. He says, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God answers his doubts and says, actually, it's not just that I'm going to fulfill what I promised. I'm going to fulfill it and excess of more. Right? I, this week I decided how many to look up, how many stars are there in our universe, right? Just ballpark figure. It's somewhere around one billion trillion stars. I'll be honest, I thought that was a made-up number, right? That sounds like a little number that a kid is asked, what's the biggest number? A uh, billion trillion stars, right? And yet that's actually somewhere in the ballpark of as many stars as we can see. But God really isn't saying, I want you to literally go out and count them, and then you're going to know. No, that's not the point. His point is to say, as much as you can imagine, I am going to bless you so much greater. Right? Just a few chapters ago, he said to him, look at the dust on the ground. If you can count that, you'll be able to count your offspring, your blessings. So whether you look down at the ground or whether you look up at the sky, Abram, be reminded that I am going to bless you, that I am going to be faithful to my promises. Right? Everything in here, God is trying to build up Abram's faith. And then you get to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is one of these really important lines in the Bible. See, not only is it Abram is believing God, he is trusting him, he is putting his faith in God, it's also what God is doing in response there. It's that he is counting, he is considering Abram as righteous. Now, I know that's a word that probably doesn't mean a whole lot. It gets used a lot in the Bible, and that's about it. But to be righteous means to have a, a right standing with God. 
That is, before God's throne of judgment and before his standard of moral purity, to be righteous means to be standing perfect, without any blemish or sin or moral imperfection on us. And what this text is saying is that that perfect record that perfect record of righteousness was given, was declared to Abram on account of his faith. Not because he had done anything, not because he had done so many good things that he was now declared to be righteous simply on the basis of his trust in God. Now you might say, but how? Abram's not exactly perfect, is he? No, we've already looked at some of the, the problems that he has gone through, some of his failures, and there's more to come in the future. Rather, he is declared righteous by God, not because of what he's done, but because of what God is doing. Paul, in the New Testament, he talks about this verse, Romans chapter 4. Practically, that whole chapter is just an understanding of this one verse. But this is what he says. He says, for what does the Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we just read. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, that is, make righteous, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, Paul is saying here that if you work for something, then you get what you are owed, but that's not what's going on. It's that God is giving Abram a gift of perfect righteousness before him on account of his faith. Now, there's a lot of questions we can ask about that, right? There's a lot of questions. One, how can God do that? How can God simply declare someone righteous who isn't? How does that work? And we're going to come to that question in a little bit, but let me just first ask, why is it faith? Why is it this belief? Why is it this trust that God is responding to and giving him this righteousness? Why faith? A lot of theologians have debated over that, but I think the answer is actually fairly simple. Why is it faith? It's because faith is simply the reliance on someone else. It's a trust in someone else, not in ourselves, in what we can do, but on someone else. See, faith is recognizing that before God, I can't do enough, and so the only thing I have to rely on is what he has done. That's why God is responding in uh, counting him as righteous because Abram's not trusting himself. He's trusting in God. Paul puts it this way again in Romans 4. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See, Paul says the reason it depends on faith is so that it would be grace. It would be an unmerited gift that God would simply be giving it we would not be earning it, that he would get all the praise, the honor, and the glory for our salvation. It's not something we have earned. It's not something we can earn. It is the gift of God. 
So Abram was declared righteous on account of his faith. And here's the good news. It's the same way we are declared righteous before God. See, that's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 4, is that actually the same way Abram was justified, made righteous before God, is the same way we are as well. See, the truth is we're in the same boat as Abram. We're in the same boat of being found not righteous before God, where we have actually sinned against him. We have fallen short. Even of our own standard that we hold ourselves to, we know we fall down, let alone to meet God's standard, which none of us have ever met. Every outburst of anger, every lie we've told, every lustful thought, every jealous or envious look, every thought that has passed through our minds that is not honoring to God shows evidence to the fact that we have not measured up. And actually, the Bible tells us that one day we are going to stand before God that we are going to stand before his judgment and we are going to be called to account for how we have lived. The Bible talks about a punishment for our sins. We don't often talk about hell here, but the truth is it's real and it's not a cartoon. The truth is it is horrible. But the good news is that this perfect record of righteousness is offered for all and for everyone who would believe. Without measure, without restraint, not based on how good you are or the things you've done, rather on your trust in Jesus. Now you might say, hold on, where did Jesus just come from? Right, Because Abram wasn't trusting in Jesus. Jesus lived thousands of years after Abram. So, so why are we now talking about Jesus? Well, my answer is the chapter isn't over yet. In fact, it continues on. Look at verse 7 with me. Look at the covenant that God is going to make with Abram. God reminds him of the other half of the promise he made. That is, one day you're going to be in a land that is your own. I'm going to dwell with you. And then Abram again asks him, verse 8, how can I be sure? How can I know that this will come true? And God answers, bring me a cow, a lamb, and a ram, and two birds. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if someone said that to me, if I said, how do I know I can trust you? And he said, bring me a cow. I would be pretty confused at that point. I would be wondering, what are you talking about? But Abram actually understands what's going on here. What was going to happen is God was going to make this covenant with him. Abram understood. He recognized that. And so he takes these animals, each of them, and he cuts them in half, right? That's how you would make a covenant. And so what would go on? We talked about a covenant. It's a little bit different than a contract, right? A contract, it's a legal agreement, Okay, you're agreeing, yes, I'll do this, yes, I'll do this, okay, this is now ratified, it's together, right? A covenant is like that, yet more, right? A, a contract doesn't really matter if you know the other person very well, right? You don't get a cell phone contract because you just love TELUS, right? That is not what's going on, no, but a covenant was something that happened. It was an agreement in the context of a relationship. So a better analogy is something like marriage. We talk about marriage being a covenant. Why? It's an agreement that is ratified, that is bonded in the 
uh, in the relationship of, or in, in a relationship. And so, a covenant is different still from a, a contract. But that doesn't explain the animals, does it? Right, the animals are there because of what a covenant really looked like. See, the, the technical term for a covenant was to cut a covenant. That's why Abram is cutting these animals in half. You would cut a covenant and you'd place the animals e on either side and the parties would then walk in between them. What it was is it was a symbol that said, if I break this covenant, so shall it be done to me. Should I be cut in half, right? This was a serious thing to do. This was not simply a flippant uh, agreement or anything like that. No, this was a serious matter. The two parties would walk together through these pieces and say, if anyone breaks, we will be put to death, right? So there's stories in the, uh, from this time, the ancient Near East, where kings had broken them and war breaks out afterwards because that was the ramifications of breaking a covenant. But something really weird happens in this story. Because Abram sets everything out, and then what happens, verse 12, he goes to sleep. He falls asleep. God puts him to sleep. And then in verse 13, he says to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, God describes what's going to happen after him. Right? He describes his descendants, his sons, the nation of Israel that comes from him. They go down into Egypt, and they spend 400 years in slavery there until God brings them up out of that and get, puts them into the land. But see, God isn't just telling him that because, hey, it's kind of a, something cool for you to know. Rather, God's telling him that because he wants to build his faith that the word of God can be trusted. He wants to allow him to realize that actually he, what he promises is going to come true. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. See, God comes as a, a torch, as the smoking fire pot. Right? If you remember the story of the Exodus, God always led his people as a pillar of fire. He would go before them and they'd follow after wherever he went. The original Jewish readers would have understood this immediately. That's the presence of God going through those pieces to make this covenant. But what's so shocking here is that Abram doesn't go with him. In fact, it's, it's God alone who goes through these pieces. God alone is the one who makes this covenant. It is going to depend entirely on God and him alone. That the promises he made, he would fulfill, and that if anyone were to break it, he alone would take the punishment. See, God wanted Abram to be able to fully trust in what he was going to do. And so God makes this unshakable covenant with him as a way of fixing his faith firmly 
in God's plans. Hebrews talks about it like this. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, covenant, so that by two unchangeable things, that is his word and his covenant, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why does God make Abram this covenant? It's so that his faith might be firmly fixed and believe, to be able to hold on like the soccer player who says, you know what, I am totally secure. Abram could say the same thing about all of the promises of God. And hear me, it's not just for Abram. This is to encourage our faith as well. We need to realize that when God speaks, he is putting his very character on the line that he will uphold what he promises so that when we read his word, we can say, this is where my faith is fixed and firm. This is where I have rooted myself. See, this covenant was going to define how generations after would relate to God. It would be through Abram, Abraham. It would be on the covenant that God made to him and this covenant that was fulfilled in Jesus. See, God was the only one to walk through those animals. He was the only one the covenant was going to rest on. Both his part and Abram's part would both rest on God alone. God is actually saying here, I am going to pay the penalty if you, Abram, break this covenant, which, by the way, he does next chapter. It doesn't even take him that long. He is about to break it. And we're going to see God himself is the one who will take that penalty. You might say, but that's just ridiculous. How is God going to die? Right? He, he's spirit. It's not like you can stab him with a sword. It's not like you can put him to death. What, is that, what does that even mean? It seems like, like a ridiculous kind of promise, a promise without any sort of merit. It's a, it's a, it's a vacuous statement without any real substance, how on earth is God going to die? Well, the answer to that question was that God would take on a body. He would take on humanity. He would become a man, and he would die. See, the amazing thing is on those blood-soaked sands in Canaan thousands of years ago, God promised that Jesus would be coming, that Jesus would come to take the penalty for our breaking of this covenant. Jesus would live a perfect life. He would have that perfect record of righteousness, never once failing, never once uh, failing to meet what God had set before him. He would have this perfect record on his account, and yet he would exchange it for ours. He would die on the cross. He would take that, pen that punishment, that penalty, and instead we would receive the righteousness of God. It's this divine exchange that happens by faith. The same way in which Abram was justified, was made right with God, is open to us here today. 
Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. He says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, we are the Gentiles, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, it's our faith in Jesus that connects us to this covenant, that connects us to all of the promises that God has made that he does not need to fear, that he will be his defender, that there is a reward that is great. We have seen the offspring that was promised Abraham, and we will one day dwell in a land with him forever. See, what we've been reading isn't history. It's how God is dealing with us today. It's the offer of the gospel that is here today for each and every one of us. In fact, Jesus didn't just fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He actually makes a new one as well. If you remember the night before Jesus is crucified, he sits down with his disciples and this is what it says. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right, Jesus isn't saying that that was literally his body or blood. That was bread and wine. But what he was saying is that these are the symbols of what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a new covenant, but not with animals who are killed. Rather, instead, I myself will be that covenant. I myself am going to die in your place so that anyone who would believe in me would be forgiven. See, that's the covenant we have in Jesus. That's where we can root our faith, that unmovable action of God, that Jesus has died, that we can say, the contract got signed, so it's mine. By faith, I am the possessor. I am the inheritor of the promises that God made to Abram, the forgiveness of sins, that I might be declared righteous before him, that when I stand before God, I don't have to fear. I don't have to be afraid because I don't stand on my own merit. I stand on the merit of Jesus. See, that is the good news that is for us today. So the question is then, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Are you willing to put your faith in him, to trust that he is going to provide, that you can seek after what he has called you to do because he is taking care of all the rest, that our standing before God isn't our doing, rather it's what Jesus has done for us. In fact, this starts by simply resting in him, by trusting in him. Will you place your faith in Jesus? Let me encourage you, if you're here today 
And you can say yes, tell someone. Whether it's for your first time or the thousandth time, tell someone. Tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell the person you're sitting next to, tell them of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. Oh, Lord, you have given us so much. You have blessed us beyond words. You have given us this assurance of our salvation, not because of what we could work up to do in ourselves, but because of what you have done in our place. Oh, Lord God, make us truly faithful. Would you allow us to walk more and more like you out of thankfulness for what you have done? Transform our hearts, transform our lives. Father, allow us to trust in nothing but you. We ask these things in your name and your name alone. Amen. Amen.